0: How are we feeling this morning? Good? A little uncomfortable? We are listening in this morning as Solomon finally gets to the point where he needs to give his son the talk. All of the awkwardness and discomfort that comes with it might be running through us this morning. And that's okay. I wanted to give us permission to feel a little uncomfortable this morning. As we jump into Proverbs chapter 7, we're talking about, in many ways, the elephant in the room. It's in the room of our churches, it's in the room of our culture. How do we live wisely as sexual beings? What do we do in the face of sexual temptation? And this is obviously a vital and important topic in our culture for a lot of reasons. A Christian understanding of sex as a powerful, covenantal, and potentially procreative act reserved for marriage has never been easy to follow. But as society has progressed, we've only gotten more creative with our ways of straying from that ideal. We've made it easier to lust, to cheat to objectify, to use and misuse sex. We've justified behaviors that leave us vulnerable, hurt, and degraded. The stats tell us that as a global community, we watch around 5 billion hours of pornography a year. And that's on one site. We've ended marriages for short-term flings, We've debased the image of God in our brothers and sisters. Solomon, in an earlier passage on this topic, said, don't even go down the road near that house. What do you do if that house is in your pocket? When it comes to sexuality, we are swimming in a sea of broken mirrors that make it impossible to know up, down, left, right, or any way forward. So we need help, and I say we intentionally. It's important at the beginning of this talk to recognize that none of us are better than that fool in the street, that all of us are vulnerable to temptation. While this may have originally been a letter to a son, as the inspired word of God in our world today, it is a letter to all of us, men and women, young and old, new Christian, and old Christian. None of us get this holy right, and all of us live in a world now that places these temptations in front of us on a regular basis. So this morning, if you can relate, I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to hear the words of Jesus again just read in our gospel message. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Feelings of shame and condemnation won't help this situation. That just leads to isolation and self-loathing and often greater destructive habits. Leave those feelings where they belong, at the foot of the cross. They've been dealt with there. My hope this morning is that as God wills, if it is necessary, we might feel conviction. Conviction, not condemnation. Conviction leads to godly sorrow, to confession, to repentance, and onward to life. Conviction says, yes, we have erred and strayed from God's ways like lost sheep, but we have a shepherd who has come to seek us out. And we belong in the fold because of the finished work of Christ, no matter what we've done, what we've imagined, or what we've attempted. It is the good shepherd's voice that we want to listen to this morning not some shaming inner critic. And so our goal this morning is to hear clearly this convicting word of God without shame or condemnation as it speaks to us through Proverbs chapter seven. We're going to walk through this chapter. And what I want to do is focus on the tactics of temptation that are presented here. Really trying to understand how this temptation works in a holistic way. And as we do so, I believe it will reveal to us how, with God's help, we can be free. And so, as we pick up our text this morning, we're in, like I said, Proverbs chapter 7. And at this point in Proverbs, Solomon has already given warnings over and over again about the dangers of sexual temptation. He's addressed it a couple of different times, but now he does something a little different. He tells a parable. Like his poetry before this, Solomon once again wants to create an experience for the reader. He wants to bring us into the moment of temptation, to outline the tactics, and then to show us the horrible result. This is actually made clear by how Solomon positions himself in the parable. Solomon is sitting up in a window, removed and safe from any temptation. He is following his own advice in that way. And from that vantage point, metaphorically, he has a bird's eye view. He can see the whole thing unfold from beginning to end. He knows where this is going. What does he see first? It says, a young man lacking sense, taking the road to her house in the twilight of the evening. At the time of night and darkness. How he's described early on, the young man doesn't seem to be intentionally seeking out this temptation, but he's making all the wrong choices if he wants to avoid it. He's not alert to the risks. In today's language, we might say he's aimlessly scrolling on his phone with no real dedication to what he will or won't watch, what he will or won't do. Over and over again, the book of Proverbs drives home our need to commit to pursuing wisdom. And here we see why. An aimlessness, a lack of direction, can lead us to places we don't want to go. And quickly, she appears. And what follows is a masterclass in understanding temptation, one that applies to all kinds of temptations, but especially to lust and sexual temptation. So we're going to break this down into three parts there's an appeal to pleasure, there's a justification. And then there's the capturing of the heart. So we'll start with pleasure. Throughout this passage we see her appealing to the pleasure of the sexual act. This is most obvious, this is the most obvious part of a sexual temptation. She kisses him right as they meet. She promises Egyptian linen, myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. She's describing a rich and luxurious experience, an evening filled with only the best things. And it's important Here, that we parse this out carefully. Pleasure is a part of this temptation, but the fact that this may be pleasurable is not why Christians call it bad. The Bible is not anti-sex, nor is it anti-pleasure. In fact, most of what she lists off can also be found in the Song of Songs, a book dedicated to the beauty of sex in its proper context. Pleasure is a good thing, a gift from God. Desiring sex, wanting pleasure, does not make you sinful. What Solomon is concerned about is the misuse of sexual pleasure. This pleasure is meant to unite two people, to act as a sign of their commitment to one another. Here, it's being distorted for an evening that will end with the return of her husband. And so what the action of sex is saying through the pleasure that I am uniting with you in body and soul is violently cut short in this passage. And this can do great harm spiritually and emotionally as the indulgence of one night gives way to a spiritual famine. Solomon sees it, but the young man doesn't. And I don't think this is just because he's thinking with the wrong part of his body. The temptation includes within it an excuse a workaround for any resistance he might have. And this leads us into what I'm calling the justification part of the temptation. There are two main ways she justifies the behavior. The first is creating a false sense of security. Her husband is away and will be away for a long time. The idea here is that no one will find out. No one will know. Perceived anonymity is one of the primary factors of pornography use today. And that seems to be what she's going for here as well. But Solomon sees a person looking out his window can tell what's going on. We're never as anonymous as we think we are. And so this false sense of security might calm those fears, but the second part of the justification tackles any moral resistance he might have as well. In verse 14, she says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. This potentially references a meal that she has waiting at home that needs to be eaten soon. This was part of their practice after making a sacrifice as they would eat the leftover meal that evening. This gives him a way out, some way to self-justify any moral concerns in his head as he walks back to her house. I'm just going to help her eat this meal. So we have an appeal to pleasure. This is pleasurable. We have a justification to get past any potential resistance. And then we have this last part, which I think is the most important, that I'm calling capturing the heart. This is the part that is often missed. Pleasure and justification alone don't lead to the kind of sexual confusion we have in our culture today. Trying to resist just these two things has led to a lot of strategies in church that focus on willpower and resiliency. And those strategies, I believe, miss the deeper level of this temptation. There's a way that lust and sexual temptation perhaps uniquely captures our heart. And that is because sexual sin is born not out of some high sex drive, but out of our deeply felt insecurities, our pain, our heartache. There's a flattery in this temptation that can cut to Deep places of vulnerability. Read verse 15 with me. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. What a powerful thing for a young man to hear. Imagine with me for a moment. Maybe this young man didn't feel wanted, didn't feel desired. Maybe he didn't fit in. Maybe he never saw himself as worthy or attractive or strong or good or useful or a true man. Now all of a sudden, someone comes and speaks a word that cuts straight through those insecurities, that seems to say they aren't true, that promises something different. In the eyes of this woman, the young man found someone looking for him. He singled out special, unique. This is powerful stuff. And as we begin to understand this part of a temptation, it changes how we engage with the sin of lust in our hearts. Instead of beating ourselves up, instead of trying to strengthen our will or our mind, we can begin to look for ways to heal our insecurities, our weaknesses, our feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness. Here's the thing. A single night of pleasure or even repeated nights of pleasure will never solve these kinds of wounds. Lust will never cure an insecure heart. Only turning towards that insecurity with compassion and grace and bringing it before God can do that. The temptation that Solomon is describing here is an illusion. An attractive mirage that promises to quench our thirst. But what Solomon rightly marks is that this illusion fails to deliver on its promise. We leave that false oasis more thirsty than before, more needy for admiration, clinging to temporary pleasures. Sexual pleasure was never meant to answer all of the needs of our heart. But the temptation says it will. The temptation says we can find the solution to our pain, whatever it might be, in lust, in sex, and in pleasure. One of the Psalms from the lectionary this week was Psalm 63. Listen to the words of David and compare it to this temptation we just described today. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David rightly recognizes that the deep and profound longings of his heart can only be satisfied in God. That is the great tragedy of sexual temptation. Because of how closely it connects to our insecurities, our sense of self, our longings to be loved and wanted, Lust often becomes a poor replacement for God. The young man is seeking God in a perfumed bed on a one night stand. And from his window, Solomon saw how this one night stand would end. The husband would return, and the young man, lacking sense, would gain nothing from the experience. Worse than that, Solomon says it would cost him his life. Is this literal? Is this melodramatic? Is it meant in a spiritual sense? I don't think Solomon means for us to know. The force of the language is enough. In some way, this is a matter of life or death. We either place our deep longings in God, the giver of life, or we seek them out in the shadow of death. So, we've outlined the temptation. We know it's there. Now, what do we do about it? Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter for a second. There Solomon says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Notice the active verbs in this passage. This isn't a matter of just saying no or simply resisting temptation. This is a matter of doing the deeper work of knowing what our vulnerabilities are and seeking to heal, soothe, and correct them through the application of wisdom. Working in the field of sex and porn addiction recovery, one of the first shifts I do with clients is trying to help them recognize that our work is not primarily about stopping a behavior— but about replacing that behavior with better things. Solomon says, Your willpower alone might not keep you from that forbidden woman, but the pursuit of something better will. Make wisdom your goal. Make it your life's ambition. And in doing so, reject the aimlessness that we see in this passage. As we grow in wisdom, both in knowledge and understanding of God and ourselves, we grow in our ability to tend to these deeper needs that lust distorts. The more we make that connection between our lusts and those deeper desires, it's like we slowly move from a street-level view of this temptation, where there's risk and vulnerability, and we join Solomon at a window-level view, and we can see how flimsy and weak the illusion really is. We see how the story ends. That after a brief and momentary pleasure comes pain, confusion, loss, and brokenness. We can see that there are infinitely better ways to feel wanted and desired and connected. This is what Jesus has for you. A maturity in Christ that recognizes and tends to our deepest needs. We can't do this alone. I love that Solomon uses relational language here. He says to wisdom, you are my sister, insight, my intimate friend. One of the ways that we can do this is by leaning on those around us. God has called us to be a church for a reason, because it's true and still true that it's not good for man or woman to be alone. There's shame in what you've done. The only antidote is confession and vulnerability with a safe person. There is discouragement. The antidote is a friend who can lift, help lift up your eyes to Christ's love and mercy again. If there is victory where there hasn't been before, we need friends to celebrate with. All of us need to hear in the voice of a friend, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. As usual, a 20-minute sermon only scratches the surface, but this morning I feel that more than usual. I would love to continue this conversation if there's interest. I would love for this church to be a place of healing from this kind of temptation and sin. I know it's possible. A few resources for us as we move forward. In the back, we have copies of two prayers that can be very helpful to reframe and reset our hearts and minds in the midst of a struggle. They come from a book called Every Moment Holy. Uh, and They're both very helpful in helping us to reframe our minds in those moments. Just a word on this, though. Prayer is not magic. These are not incantations that make the feelings go away. These are words that help us to be honest with God about what we are going through. They're words that help us go deeper into those places of insecurity, to enter into his presence and truly commune with the one who can truly satisfy. Used in that way, they can be immensely helpful. Two, we're creating a text-message-based accountability group here at Redeemer for men and for women who might be struggling with this topic. If you have a need in this area, a need for more encouragement, accountability, and support, would you consider joining? This would be a place for live support, for a place where if you're struggling in the moment, you can come and ask for prayer and get an encouraging phone, phone call or response, or just read through the messages and other resources. The plan right now is to just have a once a week, uh, have to have once a week have content posted on these groups for reflection and conversation. But beyond that, there's no time commitments beyond being willing to respond if someone asks for help or being willing to ask for help yourself. I'm still thinking through about what platform this would be on, but my hope is that it would be accessible to all. So if you want to join that, men, if you'd please contact me at at eric.redeemerallee.org. It's in the back of the bulletin. And women, if you are interested, please contact Deacon Teresa at at teresa.redeemerallee.org. Lastly, this doesn't need to be the end of this discussion. If you have questions or concerns about anything in this area, please feel free to email me as well. Maybe if I get enough questions, I can release them as a kind of Q&A anonymously or with permission, obviously, from those asking questions. I don't want Redeemer to be a place where we're left alone to face the temptations that life throws at us. Whether they be easy to talk about or not, I want Redeemer to be a place where we can face them together, a place where we can lift each other up in prayer and support, a place where we refuse to settle for anything less than wisdom from above. I want to end with this thought Solomon was considered the wisest person to ever live, but one greater than Solomon. Has come, And when he came, he spoke a different parable, one that I've referenced already in this sermon. He called himself the Great Shepherd. In this parable, Jesus didn't just sit at his window in a place of safety, sharing his wisdom. Instead, Jesus went out in search of his lost sheep. He left his place of safety. He came down into the street with us to stand with us in the midst of our temptations. To empower us, to heal us, and ultimately to die for all the ways we get it wrong. He's with you now in the midst of your temptations, whatever they may be. May we know the comfort of his presence more and more each day. Amen.